Okay, well, welcome to the uh, latest edition of Commas Podcast. This podcast has been designed around an anthology of short stories and essays which we put together last year uh, called Protest Stories of Resistance. And the idea of this book was essentially to kind of profile and uh, raise awareness and raise greater understanding, contemporary understanding of protests which have taken place over the 700 years of British history uh, that perhaps are not fully understood or are not kind of taught or or read about as much as they should be. Uh, The book itself covers uh, 20 protests from the uh, Peasants' Revolt of 1381 through to the anti-Iraq War demo of 2003. And today uh, we're talking about one particular iconic moment in uh, British history, uh, a a flashpoint and uh, a kind of bitter moment from a a trade union point of view, uh, namely the infamous Battle of Orgreave. And I'm very, very privileged to have with me three contributors who will be talking about this particular moment and the contributions to the book. I have with me, first of all, David Waddington, who's Professor of Communications and Co-Director of the Cultural Communication and uh, Computing Research Institute at uh, Sheffield Hallam. David was actually at Orgreave uh, on on the day, uh, reporting or or rather researching on uh, crowd activity and policing. We're also joined by uh, Martin Bedford. Uh, Martin is the author of the story which was written for this book called Within. He's also the author of uh, five novels for adults, two novels for young adults, including uh, Flip, which was shortlisted for the Costa Children's Book Award. And he's also the author of a a, a fantastic collection of short stories uh, called Letters Home, which is published by Comma. And we're also joined by Craig Oldham, who is a designer and creative consultant and author of uh, In Living Memory, of work, a visual record of the uh, UK miners' strike, 1984-1985. Craig is also a campaigner with the Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign and is the son of a Barnsley miner. Uh, so I thought we'd start uh, with a, uh, a short reading from the, uh, the story in question by, by Martin. I'm going to read the uh, opening page of the story because it doesn't require any explanation to set it into context. Within... 2014. Everyone filed out of the chapel to gather by the wreaths, which were arranged in front of the stand bearing Dad's name, sharpening the air with their scent. We stood in the September sunshine, too warm in our formal clothes. People said what a lovely service it had been. My sister-in-law, Tanya, told me how much she liked my speech. You did Don proud, she said. The note cards were still in my fist, bent into a tube and damp with sweat. I thanked her, slipped the cards into the pocket of my suit jacket. Susie caught my eye through the crowd of mourners and mouthed, You okay? I nodded. She was with Mam, stooping to retrieve the cellophane-wrapped messages and reading them out to her. The dutiful daughter-in-law. Not that my mother would have had more than the vaguest idea who Susie was. Rich nudged my elbow. What the fuck's he doing here, he said under his breath. I looked where he was looking. A figure stood at the top of the steps that climbed a grass embankment above the chapel. The thick brows, the great dome of his head. Uncle Peter. Thirty years older than the last time I'd set eyes on him, but unmistakable. It should have fallen to me to take charge of the situation, But ever since the two of us were big enough to fight, the age difference between me and Rich had seemed notional. 
I was the kid brother. I just happened to have been born first. That's how it had been when I was a boy. I felt no different now, aged 53. So we just pretend we haven't seen him, Rich said, as if I'd suggested exactly that. Tanya must have cottoned on that something was wrong. Who is it? she asked. Dad's brother, I told her. She hadn't met Uncle Peter, but it was clear she knew all about him. She laid a hand on my brother's sleeve. Don't make a scene, Rich. Not today, not here. Rich freed his arm and, before we could stop him, made his way over to the steps. Thank you, Martin. The date is 18th of June, 1984. So the strike had begun on the 6th of March, 1984, and the Battle of Orgrieve took place on the 18th of June that year. So we're three and a half months into the strike when this happens. Um, Thatcher had instructed uh, the National Coal Board to stockpile at least six months of coal before this strike. And Orgrieve is a, a small village on the outskirts of Sheffield, and it isn't a mine... It's a, a coking plant which was delivering processed coke uh, to the Scunthorpe British Steel Institute. Between 5,000 and 10,000 miners had convened on Orgreave in the attempt to close this coking plant down. What unfolded as, uh, was depicted in the BBC News later that day as a straightforward act of self-defence by the police. Uh, the police were charged, they came under attack uh, from missiles, uh, and things being thrown, and then they uh, charged back and uh, cleared, cleared the area at the end of the day. But a lot of things happened that day, and just uh, I'm not going to jump right to the end, but there were uh, around 93 arrests, 71 pickets were charged with riot, and uh, 24 with violent disorder. The main narrative about what happened was established by the media and backed up by the police. And it wasn't until the trial uh, and prosecution of uh, various minors, which actually happened the year later, that the the accounts sort of started to, to uh, untangle and unravel. And since then, the, the event has been described uh, by the historian Tristan Hunt, described the day as almost medieval in its choreography, at various stages, a siege, a battle, a chase, a rout, and finally a brutal example of legalised state violence. Uh, Robert East, writing in the Journal of Law Society in 1985, wrote that the police intended that Orgreave would be a battle where, as a result of their preparation and organisation, they would defeat the pickets. Uh, and Michael Mansfield has said uh, they wanted to teach the miners a lesson, a big lesson, such that they would not come out in force again. The Civil Liberties Pressure Group, Liberty, has said there was a riot, but it was a police riot. I'm going to start with uh, you, David. Um, how did you end up being there on the day, on this uh, this pivotal pivotal day of British history? Okay. Um, well, I'd, I'd done a PhD at uh, Aston University. Uh, ironically, it was uh, it was uh, all focused on my experience uh, and the the intrigue that uh, surrounded the the earlier minor strikes. In, in 1972 and 74, so I, effectively I did a PhD on uh, on strikes with with all that in mind. And bear in mind, I came from Castleford, which is a mining town, and it seemed to be part of my DNA. And and as part of these this study, I spent six months effectively on strike with a group of brewery workers uh, at Ansell's Brewery, which was close to Aston University, uh, where I was based. 
Then I saw this advert as I was coming to the end of my studies, which said, um, you know, ethnographer wanted to work on project. Effectively, it was around flashpoints of public disorder, which encompassed the sort of 81 riots around that time. And, uh, and I came to Sheffield, ironically. Uh, it was part of a, of a suite of, of like-minded projects funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. Uh, and the reason Sheffield had been given this grant, it was then the Polytechnic, was because Sheffield was regarded as a quiet backwater. It hadn't seen the, the same sort of level of rioting that there'd been elsewhere in the country. And, and it was seen there's something in the water in Sheffield that is different from other major cities, what makes it a peaceful city. Uh, so I'd been going around and interviewing steel strikers and youths who were in an almost riot and things like that. And then, of course, in March 1984, the miners' strike kicked off. Sheffield, the, the home of the National Union of Mine Workers, South Yorkshire, the epicentre of the strike. And it became almost like the national um, arena for conflict. That and Nottinghamshire and parts of Scotland, of course. So, actually, from March onwards, I had been on a day-to-day -day ritual of accompanying strikers on picket lines. And it wasn't that difficult and it wasn't that horrendous to do because, as I say, I came from a mining background in Castleford and I'd got connections through the union, etc. We'd been up front, we'd told South Yorkshire Police all this, and I was actually visiting picket lines and going and being used to some to some degree. I mean, my I'm sure that my phone was tapped, uh, and I'm sure that the, the NUM sent me uh, or told me to, to gather at certain places where, uh, where they knew that the police were listening in, they're listening in to Waddington and we'll throw them off the scent by getting Waddington to go to Grimethorpe when we're all meeting in Walt Maltby, things like that. So I was being used as a bit of a pawn, but, you know, that was the quid pro quo I knew about that. As far as Orgreave is concerned, then I think it's important to establish that whilst the Battle of Orgreave, as it has become known and immortalised, was on the, um, the, the 18th of June, as, as you've just done in your very uh, comprehensive introduction, pe people refer to the Battle of Orgreave as if it was just that sort of one-off encounter of the 18th of June. In actual fact, what was uh, a, a, a much more prolonged saga commenced in earnest around, I would have said, 23rd of May or something like that, when the NUM president, Arthur Scargill, went down to appeal to coke workers, you know, to stop sending coke to the anchor steel work in, in, in Scunthorpe. So, um, but Scargill uh, had very little uh, success, came out, was actually bundled to the floor when a coke convoy arrived, and at that point um, uttered the sort of immortal words, listen, we want other miners and trade unionists to come down here and turn or grieve into another Saltley, which was one of the sort of divine, defining events of the, uh, the 1972 strike in which the miners were successful. And I think really that was the line in the sand for subsequent. There were similar days on around the 30th and the 31st of May to what happened on the uh, the 18th, not with the qu quite the same severity, but very high numbers of arrests and mutual stone throwing, ch charging, etc. Uh, and then there was the lull, and I think it was that lull that effectively defined the terms of the 18th of June, because I think that the police were wrong-footed on that day, initially. And then they gathered in earnest, and I think at that stage they said, right, we've had enough of this, we're going to wipe the floor with them. So you feel that the police didn't plan the whole day 
beforehand? I think the police, the police organisation was well oiled and the, the infrastructure was all there. I think that they'd got token presences, but bear in mind there'd been something, a hiatus of about, what, two weeks where there'd only been token pickets on Orgreave. And I think that what happened was that groups of miners went down, I think possibly from from the Doncaster panel, went down and they entered the coke works in an appeal, you know, to, directly to the workers. They were flushed out, dogs were brought in, and I think at that point miners were, I think, funneled back, some by decree of their union, others by police tactics which prevented them from going into Nottinghamshire. But I think that the police were coming all from all over the place, 11, 12 forces, far afield as Northumbria and Humberside and places like that. So talk talk us through your day and what you saw. I know it was, On that particular yeah. day? Again, it was, um, there was the sublime and the ridiculous. There was, there's a lot, I mean, miners, they've got sense, a, a profound sense of humour, as you know. Um, there, there was a lot of um, uh, mutual pushing and shoving. The convoy came as per usual. But I think on that day, what was really different was that the, the police went in hard from the outset. I think the ranks opened, and I think it was unnecessary. I think on this particular occasion, if memory serves, it was something like one of those perspex shields that were set set alight. Now that I think, in previous occasions down at Orgreave, it might have that the, the police would have let that go. I think on this particular occasion, I think that they were were intent on going in early. And I think that's what they did. The horses went in early on that particular occasion, and I think that the scene was set from that. You see, the the climactic events, the ones that you tended to see on television, etc., and and sometimes they were made to seem seamless. It was as if there was this seamless energy and confrontation. Well, it wasn't like that. You know, there were the lulls were longer than the confrontation. Actually, there's mm. talk of people, uh, miners, picketers, like sunbathing and playing yeah, football. The, and yeah, the, yeah, and 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 I mean, you'll have seen the famous incident, and I think that was indicative. Have you got the guy with the beard who was doing the the inspection of the uh, of, of the ranks of police officers? Well, if, again, if memory serves, on that particular day, I think he was arrested. They would have tolerated that on another on a, on a particular day, but on this particular day as well, this had, you know it was it, it it was the mid middle of the summer. It was the eighteenth of June, the uh, the sun was baking down, the the police were there like you know sort of boiled in the bag cod you know in their uniforms, not really being stood down very often etc. Uh, I think at this stage they'd had enough, and I'm talking about the rank and file having had enough. And I think that usually the impulse of those police officers was to go chase, track down and arrest. And I think, you know, that, that, that is what they're trained for. And I think that one of the things, the frustrating things, and again, memory is serving in this, was a group of youths, there was this, I don't, I don't know, it's like an abandoned car lot or something, you know, scrap. And they rolled this tyre out and a cheer went up and they were rolling it. It was almost like, you know, kids with a whip and top. Well, they'd got these bigger sticks, but they were rolling down this tyre. And they got this particular tyre, and they started rolling down the... And it was hilarious, you know. And it would have been easy for the police, to, I think, to have laughed it off. But what happened was, rather like an athletics race with a false start, some of the police officers belted out. And initially, they were brought back. 
And I think, I don't know whether, a, a, you know, a widespread grumble went up al along the ranks, etc. But the the wheel, the tyre went down and like a, a, a penny in, you know, in a, in a shove halfpenny escapade, it, it teetered and then it dropped on its side. And then they went and they did a bit more. A few more police officers ran out. Uh, there, there was a reply with a few stones. And it was at that point that it developed into just a free-for-all riot where the police came out and I think they were unleashed. So you think it was it was not a um, decision made by Anthony Clements, the chief inspector uh, at the time? Uh, it was just bad management of the whole day? No, I, I think that it was... There was a situation there. Sometimes police police <laughs> have told me. I mean, it happened at the the Isle of Sheppey in the, in the steel strike, for example, when steel workers went down. They say, look, you know, sometimes resources come into it, and you get a bit fed up of utilising all these resources, and eventually, you got to lance the boil. And maybe it was that. Maybe it was. They were. I mean, there were political overtones, obviously, as this. But maybe it was. Look, we've had enough of this now. You know, and at that point, teaching a lesson, perhaps that came into it at that particular point. But whatever, I think that Clements knew what he was doing at that stage, and he knew that as soon as he opened the ranks and they went in, that there was only one outcome, and one outcome he was looking for, and that was, you know, the uh, uh, the stampeding of the pickets and arrests being made. And very often, if you get a situation like that, you're presumed guilty for being there. Some of the guys who were running away, some of the older guys I spoke to, they said, my mate's been arrested uh, because, for, for one thing, being too slow. And uh, there, was, there was a stampede out of the field. Yeah. Uh, there's the famous photographs that everybody's seen of, of uh, individuals having truncheons raised yeah. at them and being attacked by uh, mounted police. There was around 5,000, 6,000 police there. Something like that, yeah, and yeah. it didn't stop at clearing the field and no. securing the work at the uh, at the right. coke works. The coke works was running earlier in the day, and the real kind of police riot, if if we can call it that, happened much later. By which point, the the coke works had had done its its day's yeah. work, yeah. and it kind of went out into the into the village. Uh, through the terraced houses, it was just complete mayhem. The the whole village was kind of overcome by uh, by riot police. It was. Um, I mean, there, there was a there was a mass retreat. I I can remember trying to trying to um, claim sanctuary in this. It was a, a, a one of those sort of bungalow style electricity generating stations, and I can remember I was fitter. I was younger in those days. Uh, I was closer to thirty than than sixty, and I uh, and I can remember leaping over this this fence, and I can remember suddenly the gate swinging open. And a couple of mounted police coming in to flush us out. And initially, I went to get over the fence, and I put my hands on the rail, and this this police officer just went across and took the skin off two knuckles. But just before that, I'd been running away, and um, and, and I thought that one of the, one of the guys who'd been running with me had just pushed me in the back, you know, to propel me forward or whatever. And I found myself overtaking about ten of the sort of escapees in one one bound. And when uh, after there'd been this incident, this uh, this this subsequent incident in the uh, uh, generating station, a guy came up to me and he said, uh, "You know, say you all right, old cock?" And I said, uh, "I said I'm fine." I said, "It's just," he said, "No," he says, "He says that hit that you're in your back." 
And I said, I don't, don't know about that. And he said, uh, he said it was a short shield, one of these with the but the buttons on, and um, and it went straight between my shoulder blades, but propelled me forward. And it was only when I got home that evening and tried to take my pullover, my wife had to take my pullover off for me, because I'd been hit in the back. But having done that and retreated. Uh, Orgreave was at the bottom of the hill. I don't know what they call the road coming, but I always called it Handsworth Hill. Uh, and, it, and it was it was a, a steep hill downwards and all these adjoining terraced houses with passageways down. And we were running away and I remember escaping down one of these passageways with one of the guy who turned out to be uh, in, in from North Derbyshire. And we we literally hid behind, you know, these big flat pack boxes that you get from Ikea and places like that. Um, we were hiding behind those and just peeping between. And we were talking away and, it, shh, 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 and just peeping. There were these marauding groups of officers. And it looked like they were on the lookout. It, you know, it was sinister. It was like being in Star Wars or something. And they they were clearly on the lookout. We kept quiet and they went away. And we stayed there for another 20 minutes or so and then left and we were we were safe so martin uh, moving on to moving on to your your story and your uh, your piece here why did you first of all choose this particular strike or this this protest uh, to write about well firstly looking down the list of um, protests and strikes that you circulated to the authors that was the one that leapt out at me because I distinctly remember that that day or that that strike um, I was actually out of the country at the time when Dave was at um, at Orgreave I was 6,000 miles away in Hong Kong um, and I was 24 years old and I was traveling backpacking with a friend of mine um, I'd been working as a journalist for three four years at that point and <clears throat> was active in the National Union of Journalists I'd been on picket lines as a journalist we'd had I think we'd had about three strikes in my first 18 months as a journalist I'd gone secondary picketing. This was in the early years of the Thatcher government. She'd been elected in 79 and I started working as a journalist in 1980. So she'd only been in power for about a year and she was just beginning to roll out the anti-trades union, anti-picketing legislation that she sort of saw through during the 80s. So um, in the early part of that period of her premiership, there were a lot of industrial disputes. I think employers were emboldened by her premiership and, and unions were um, in opposition to it. So there were a lot of disputes that I've been involved with. So I'd, I'd sort of seen industrial disputes and picketing at, at first hand. Um, and then I'd gone, I'd given up my job in journalism to go traveling for a year and was in Hong Kong watching. We, we'd, a friend and I were teaching English there and we'd rented this scuzzy little room on a high rise sort of building in Kowloon um, we had a black and white television portable television that we'd bought and we, we could watch the English language news channels and they were showing the footage of what I didn't realize at the time was the so-called Battle of Orgreave I was aware the mining the miners strike had been going on for um, a few months I'd left the country the previous September but um, a good friend of mine was um, a fellow journalist but his father was a coal miner at Easington Colliery in County Durham and uh, this friend of mine sent us sticker sheets with coal not dole stickers on them and we me and my mate in between our teaching shifts would go around and put these coal not dole stickers on the hong kong subway system and bus stops and everywhere the next day we go back and they'd all been peeled off again but we were repeatedly putting these stickers up so i was aware of the strike i'd been following it in the english language newspapers and i'd been watching it on the tv news and then this particular footage of, of orgreave was was really quite shocking 
Um, I mean, as I say, I'd been involved in picket lines. I'd, as a football fan in the 70s and 80s, I'd seen the police in action dealing with, with inverted commas, mobs. You just, a few hundred of you queuing to go through some turnstiles, not causing any problems, but the police would take it upon themselves to sort of push you around, bully you, barge their police horses into you, let the dogs get a bit close to you and bark at you. And I'd been used to the way that the police treated um, mobs of, of young men. But even by those standards, it was quite shocking to see the um, the violence, the brutality that was acted out at Orgreave. So it left a lasting impression on me, that that particular episode. And I returned to the country in that October and the strike was still going on until the following spring. So I was sort of following it then. So that, I think it, it lingered in my mind for the best part of 30 years. And then when you got in touch and offered the the, the list of protests, that was the one that just jumped out at me because I got a personal connection to it, albeit very remotely. And your story uh, doesn't doesn't sort of tell the story of the day. It tells the story of the the legacy and the kind of uh, the impact of of the minor strike generally over uh, you know two generations of a family uh, and its impact you know nearly thirty years later and the kind of the feud or the rift in the rift in the middle of the family caused by one particular character who, who just breaks and and uh, goes back to work and can't survive and is then labelled a scab. So it's so it's not a straightforward kind of um, hero narrative. The strikers and the picketers were the the heroes, and, and you know it's, it's not simplified in that way. And uh, you end up you know kind of really troubled at the end of the story because you have to kind of think about what would have caused this rift and what would have caused this kind of this damage that was a, a very deliberate choice by you yeah I mean I, I like ambiguity in fiction anyway I, I don't like reading stories or novels that tell me what I should think about something even if I'm inclined to agree with the author I'd prefer to be allowed to arrive at that for myself so I prefer ambiguity as a writer and as a reader so I, I although I have political allegiances and affiliations and strong views about the minor strike. I didn't want my views to sort of inform the narrative to the point where readers were feeling steered towards a certain response. I wanted to create ambiguity. So your sympathies hopefully shift as the story progresses. Your sympathies shift between characters. Your your assessment of one particular character at the outset of the story might have become different by the, the end of it. Um, and and the, the time frame was partly decided to, to enable that. So there's the 2014 strand, uh, which is obviously 30 years after the strike, and it opens with the funeral of, of Don, the, the father of the narrator. Um, and then there are the 1984 scenes, which are the narrator as a young man. Um, it's a fictionalised version of me in the sense that he is out in Hong Kong when this happens. But uh, but the difference there is that, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm from Croydon, and my dad was a sheet metal worker in, in a factory, so I, I wasn't from a mining community. I was from a working-class sort of labour-voting socialist community but my um, fictionalized version of that character is is of someone whose father has been injured at Orgreave while he's in Hong Kong and he returns from his travels um, leaves the girlfriend that he's traveling with and returns to the UK because his father's recovering from this head injury um, so I, I wanted my narrator to be an ambiguous character in himself because he's someone who has left his mining village of um, well I call it Withan but it's based on Dinnington which is near Rotherham in South Yorkshire he is someone who's left his mining roots and his family and his community behind and has, has moved to London to work as a journalist. Um, and that creates a degree of, of separation and tension between him and his his brother, who um, has remained local and worked down the pit. 
um, as did his father and as did his uncle. Um, so he, he becomes a sort of ambiguous narrator, um, someone who was semi-removed from what was going on in, in uh, the, the miners' strike. Um, and then, as you've mentioned, that there's a, a rift within the family when, when one family member, due to reasons of shortage of money, of lack of food, um, after 10 months of the strike, crosses the picket line and goes back to work and creates a, a split in the family that is still there 30 years later. He, When he turns up unexpectedly at the funeral scene, it's the first time that um, the narrator has set eyes on him in 30 years because of that, that split. I've got to come back to the story in a minute and your conversation with David, but I thought now I'd bring in Craig. Um, Craig, what's your connection? Uh, you you obviously uh, campaign for the uh, Truth and Justice uh, campaign, but uh, you have a much uh, much more kind of personal connection to Orgreave. Yeah, very, very personal connection to Orgreave. I mean, I, I come from mining family, uh, good mining stock in Barnsley. Much like what Mike was just saying there, that I, my life kind of parallels that, albeit 30 years later but um, you know my, my dad was a miner my granddad was a miner both of them went out on strike in 1984 but before that my great granddad was a miner and it goes as back and as that and much like all all sort of mining town families and communities did there was always a miner in the family no matter where where they were uncles whatever and uh, as I said my, my dad and my granddad went out on strike and they stayed out for the duration and my dad was at Orgreave he was actually, well, he, he was there before and he'd been there. He'd gone all over the place picketing for his union uh, and he ended up at Orgreave and was arrested uh, and he was charged with unlawful assembly and riot, which at the time carried a life sentence for him. Uh, three years to life, I think he told me. It's a really personal thing to me. I, I'm called, what, what, well, I'm referred to as a strike bairn or a strike baby in Barnsley still because... Uh, I was conceived and born during the strike. Um, that was my dad's labour for the time. Um, and it's personal to me because I, I guess growing up in this sort of post-industrial mining town where I wasn't old enough to be aware of what was going on, I wasn't old enough to be aware of the context of the, 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 the sort of the politics of it and the sort of the history and the sort of social depravity that was happening around me. And it was only as I grew up in that that I started to become aware of the importance of it and I would say my duty to sort of to look back on those things and still play a part I am a generation away I I can't I can't stand up and say I was there this is what happened but I have a duty to my community and to my family to make sure that that injustice that was carried out on my dad on my granddad and on countless tens of thousands of other people's dads, granddads, uncles, whatever, even mums and, and, and nans and everything, because women against pit closures were really pivotal in the strike. I have a duty to make sure that they get the justice, even if it's 30 years, 40 years, 50 years later, because there are universal injustices that happened at Orgreave, and that's why it's really personal to me on that level as well, uh, not just my family, but also for my kids, when they come along, I want them to know what happened and why that was a bad thing. And you said you didn't realise that your dad was arrested on the day until 2014. I didn't know. Um, I was pulling together for the 30th anniversary of the strike, I was pulling together a book uh, called In Loving Memory of Work, which is a visual record of the strike. There's been a lot of books around the strike as a from a historical point of view, from a political point of view, from social, etc. And all of those kinds of things. But there was never one about the sort of the human sort of creative response that people during in those communities and involved in that dispute were going through and what they did as a sort of 
as a release valve to deal with those things and they were extremely creative and it had just been sort of willfully ignored and as a designer and involved in the creative industries I wanted to do something to address that. So I started pulling that together in the run up to the 30th anniversary in sort of 2013, 2014. Uh, so I started nosing around my family, you know, asking asking mum, asking dad, asking everybody, oh, if you've got anything from the strike or if you have any stories. I was sitting down with people and recording these things. And I reached out to the Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign because I wanted to help their campaign. I wanted to raise money for them. I wanted to give them the book so they could sell it and keep the proceeds. And in doing so, just a completely offhand comment that my mum said to me, I was I was explaining this to her that I wanted to do it, and she just said, oh, you should speak to your dad. He was arrested there. My sort of jaw hit the floor. Really, I just, I was just, how 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 have I not been told this? How was how has no one ever spoke about this? And in a way, there was a sort of cathartic thing that happened as a result of doing the book because that story then unravelled for us and the family and my dad. It became obvious he'd been repressing that and sort of ignoring it and trying to put it in his mind somewhere else that he didn't want to deal with it and me f sort of not forcing him strong-handed but in a way encouraging him to challenge how he felt about him what he'd done with those emotions and those experiences and let them come through and come out of him and and share them all with the family so it was a it was a painful experience but it was also a really good one and I, I guess we should talk about the kind of uh, the follow-up the immediate aftermath of uh, the the day there were 93 arrests the police kind of put together a picture of what happened that day. As you said, Craig, there was this law, uh, it's a common law statute about the, the, the crime of rioting, which comes with it three years to life as a, as a potential sentence. And it's uh, a law which is kind of never used these days. It's never invoked. Uh, the last time it was invoked was uh, 1919 with the police strike in Birkenhead. Uh, and apparently the last time it was really used in kind of a large amount or in many, many cases was Peterloo. It's a, it's a very, very old statue and it's a, it's a very blunt instrument under which to kind of prosecute strikers and, and people demonstrating and exercising their democratic right. And it turned out that the police had a very uh, particular way of, of, of dealing with the statements. The case uh, that uh, Michael Mansfield QC... Uh, defended the year later collapsed largely because the police had themselves recorded and videoed a lot of the day's events and their own footage contradicted their statements also because a lot of statements had very very similar lines in them there was a case of one paragraph uh, which was repeated uh, in the statements of 31 different officers from four different forces describing kind of sequence of events. And there was also a case of uh, one officer, PC Stephen Hill, admitted that much of his statement had been dictated to him and later uh, officers came out and said there were various unidentified officers that came up to them and said, this is how your statement must start. It was a, it was a very sort of draconian measure and it was easy for, for prosecutors, Gareth Pearce and, and uh, Michael Mansfield among them, to sort of unpick... Um, and in that, in that court case and, and various other court cases uh, that immediately followed, the, 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 the sort of stitch-up uh, was exposed, but it wasn't exposed in the general public. Uh, the media never really admitted that they were complicit in the way they portrayed that event. The government never admitted its uh, complicity. And much like 
the the catastrophe, the tragedy of Hillsborough, which happened five years later, which was also a South Yorkshire police disaster and featured many of the same senior officers, much like that. To my knowledge, there's never been a single prosecution. There's never even been a single disciplining of a single police officer uh, for what happened. The cover-up was kind of exposed in the court, but it wasn't really exposed in the court of public opinion. David, do you feel that, given the way that everything was sort of stitched up immediately afterwards, that there was something premeditated about the day, or do you think it was a case of damage limitation? I think that there was a particular climate that was prevailing then, and uh, and I think that climate sort of uh, fed into the the police mentality. The police knew that they were... I mean, there's the famous um, anecdote about Mrs Thatcher uh, uh, smacking her fist on the table and, and, and getting irate with, I think it was the president of ACPO or whatever, and saying, look, you know, we want the, uh, the, the police to stiffen their resolve. I think that it soon became apparent, talking to the police in those days as I did, and I interviewed chief constables of South Yorkshire, for example, a deputy chief constable, I think that there was there was this feeling that they were in this impregnable political position. And for years afterwards, I can remember being at um, a, a conference in Milton Keynes and one of the chief superintendents uh, uh, down at Orgreave said to me, well, everybody knew that Scargill was leading them by the nose, that the miners were nothing uh, less than um, football hooligans, and uh, they'd been uh, revved up uh, considerably, and, uh, and, and by the way, what were you doing down there on the day? As if, you know, there were all these agent prov provocateurs and I may have been one of them. So I think that there was a very rigid opinion, there was a very uh, politicised attitude on the part of the police, and I think that they felt impregnable in those days, as indeed they did at Hillsborough. I thought that they were, they felt that they were protected by a political shield, and I think that it's very tempting to speculate in terms of what, what, how would the situation have been had we had the, the advent of social media been 30 years prior to this. You know, there wasn't a contra-discourse then, whatever the police said, they got away with. Clement, for example, Assistant Chief Constable Tony Clement said, I actually saw Arthur Scargill, I was as far away from here, and he slipped rather than was pushed, and he hit his head on, the, the, on a railway sleeper, and he went into hospital. And photographic evidence subsequently revealed that he was way back. And to be honest with you, a, a journalist told me, off the record, it was someone who was working for the Sheffield Star in those days, said, we were actually following like a herd, you know, from the protection of the police ranks. We were following up while the battle commenced further afield towards Hansworth, and someone slipped a kind of daisy-wheel copy of a pre-prepared statement to give to Tony Clement. And he said, excuse the language, F me, Scargill's been injured. And he was nowhere near it. Now, that was given to me by a journalist. You know, was the, was the journalist telling the truth? Well, I believe so. So that was my informal information on it. I have to jump in. Why didn't the journalist report it at the time? Good, good question. A, a very good question. Uh, you'd have to ask the journalists uh, that. Um, you know, I mean, there was the famous incident where the guy with the red pullover, pullover was being beaten around the head. Now, they showed that on ITN, 
significantly there was no accompanying uh, narrative there was no commentary it was let the you know make up your own mind about this because i'm not going to go there but then the bbc reporter john thorne says guess what he said we showed the flying kick in retaliation but not the initial beating of the guy in the red and you know what we were doing at that time we were changing the batteries mm. in the camera now you know i mean there was a lot of that there's i think there's been a lot of um uh denial going on in terms of um, in, t in terms of police officers as well as well they said you know well actually it wasn't our fault we were duped we were duped by the fat Thatcher administration you know people are having to deal with it with hindsight yeah. people who were you know who, who probably got to reproach themselves afterwards it's it's very strange um you know if you compare the two uh, which is perhaps a dangerous thing to do but if you look at Hillsborough and, and Orgreave there are so so many similarities not just in terms of the personnel this idea of uh, reframing the victim as the per as the perpetrator as the offender uh, the doctoring of statements in the Hillsborough case there were 116 statements that were that were doctored yeah. uh, the the reframing of the victim as the perpetrator was uh, was absolutely disgusting in the Hillsborough uh, case. They had uh, policemen giving statements saying that Liverpool fans were urinating on the on the dead bodies. Uh, they said they were stealing from the dead bodies, etc., etc. It was a part of a of a, you know those kinds of tactics. This is this is five years after Orgreave, uh, and it's it's four years after you know the, the riot charge collapsed. It's still a very audacious thing to thing to do or tactic to do, and. I wonder if, you know, it wasn't a case of it was always that way, but it was the South Yorkshire police and maybe the British police generally were building towards this point. The the tactics of dealing with the riot, this, this short shield snatch squad tactic was something that was developed uh, in uh, 1981 with the Toxus riots and had been borrowed from uh, crowd control in Hong Kong. But it, it was it was new. It was a new tactic. And it was very, very well organised. I wonder to what extent people can just say, well, you know, these were branded as the enemy within. We believed Thatcher that they were hooligans and and therefore, you know, all of our all of our kind of stitch up tactics afterwards uh, justified uh, the end. Uh, you, you, you can certainly go back to the previous minor strikes where, uh, you know, you'd got the... Uh the spectre of what happened with the flying pickets there. And of course, you've got the instigation of the National Reporting Centre. So that, you know, were there to be a subsequent occasion where you'd got groups of so-called flying pickets going about the country, then you would have an infrastructure uh, and a, a setup capable of responding or having a police response to them so that you wouldn't have a situation where you'd got the, the so-called tyranny of another Saltley. I think that you'd also got, I mean, there was this big pressure to take on the, you saw it in the steel strike in Sheffield. You saw groups of, uh, of police being brought in from other areas, albeit on a much lesser scale, more benign scale uh, th th than occurred four years later at, at Orgreave. Uh, but as you say, it's that sort of, it's, it's almost like a pro process of accretion where, or evolution is probably a better word, where you got tactics. The police were outflanked in the Bristol riot, for example. They were responding to stone throwing by local residents in 1980 with dustbin lids. And they said, we can't have that again. So that was brought in and that became a factor 
in the minor strike. But tactics that were used in the minor strike were all were were already being rehearsed big time in um, in 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 the the taking on of the uh, the print unions in the newspaper industry. You know, in 1983, the NGA and and places the Warrington Messenger with Eddie Sharp. Uh, and in those situations, you'd got um, the, the then se- Home Secretary, Leon Britton, um, uh, uh, saying in, in no uncertain measure to, uh, to local chief constables, you do what it takes, you know, and if it costs you a fortune in mutual aid, then we'll pick up the tab. I, mean, I think for myself, um, I, I, again, you know, I... I have to state, you know, I, I wasn't there, of course, but you, you look you look back on the facts and you look back on the context of the time and of where we are now, and equally you draw you can draw parallels and you can draw similarities. For me, the the sort of the links between Orgreave and Hillsborough, they they're not sort of similarities, they're not overlaps, they're they're inextricable. They they repeated exactly techniques that they used at Orgreave to sort of try and cover up, and what the what they got away with there they thought they'd get away with again I think that is I think there's ample evidence to sort of to communicate that and equally I think there's 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 ample evidence to sort of make a case for premeditation when it comes to Orgreave I think the behaviour of the police is one of them the fact that that road blocking and the sort of what we now I think is the sort of the terrorism bill that was passed uh, under new labour that was trying to, in a, in a different form and a different guys trying to go through Parliament to give them stop and search. They were doing that in the strike. They were they were making roadblocks so miners were not allowed to go to places in Orgreave. They were invited in. They were flanked on three sides. The, that behaviour alone, to me, implies that there was premeditation. Uh, the behaviour afterwards, the the charges. Uh, you said yourself that, uh, and the, all the charges were trumped up. I think for me, the, the, and all this evidence just keeps. Stacking up on stacking up, and of course it was thrown out. But you're right. I mean, it's a public opinion. Hillsborough, and and the sort of the inexcusable sort of journey that those families have had to go through to get justice in a, you know in in an independent inquiry in in a panel, and still fighting for you know proper justice. And Orgreave needs that as well. Orgreave needs that exact same examination because they are so intrinsically linked together. The, you can't separate them. There was another one of my questions. You know, what what would constitute justice? Um, kind of some some kind some sense of um, bringing this to you know sol- solving this or resolving the the conflict that this has left. Uh, justice is a it's 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 a complex thing. Um, I don't think it is a a simple matter of of a court ruling. I think otherwise. We would have, we well, we wouldn't have had justice because it wasn't for the same kind of things. But there's too much ambiguity out there. There's still today people are not saying the truth. Fam- families cannot resolve their issues. These issues don't just stem from people that were at Orgreave. They're a rot that sets in, and it doesn't stop until you treat it, until you treat it properly and formally. And it's not necessarily about accountability for the police officers that were there. It's it because I think again there's ample evidence to show that that was orchestrated much further up, and there needs to be accountability on how our police force, which is supposed to be independent of our state and of our government, is allowed to be an extension of it. They shouldn't be doing the bidding of politicians. They should be there to protect the public, and we 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 all need justice for that. I need justice for my dad because he was arrested, and 
He has never had an apology, as you said before. No one has ever been disciplined or charged or reprimanded for what they were given carte blanche to do to just working people. That needs to go away because I was told not to trust the police. I was told not to sort of air my grievances until I have to. And I'm sure that the police force now has changed. But there are still things going on and it's 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 impossible to ignore these things no matter how kind of tangential they are they're all linked and it all comes down to trust and it all comes down to formality and we have to have that open and the facts have to be laid out plain and simply and bare so that everybody can no longer form a denial about it say oh that didn't happen that's nonsense or say it was all the media and all these kind of ambiguities that cloud all of that that just needs to be cleared away um and that's why for me we need an independent inquiry into the policing and into what happened at Orgreave to give those families rest. David, do you think it's too political to have uh, an inquiry? In some ways, this is more difficult than uh, Hillsborough because Hillsborough is is non-political. It's just people going to see a football game. It's a completely neutral activity that everyone can relate to, whilst a strike is is much more loaded. um, And it's much more... uh, The way people think about strikers is is much more divided and polarised and politicised. I think that in the wake of um, of our grief, and I'm talking, I'm in in the wake. I'm talking about something like a six, seven year period uh, where you had whopping, you had the poll tax riot, you had uh, all the the animal rights activism, uh, you had the environmental activism, etc., and uh, all the things around raves and what have you that that um, uh, were, were very uh, fundamental to to policing in those days. I think that there was a, a massive sea change, and I think that people were looking in a, in their rearview mirror and saying, "Listen, we're middle class worthies who were standing at Brightling Sea, and we're getting humped around by the police," you know. We're the parents of uh, of middle class kids who go to rave events, and they're being humped around by the police. We're in a poll tax uh, demonstration in central London, and the police seem to have gone berserk, uh, or uh, d- doing unnecessary things and having very questionable tactics uh, that are dangerous to people. And I think there's a realization that, and I think that people were looking back over their shoulder. The the, the die had been cast in in South Yorkshire big time because I think there were communities there who were alienated to a man and woman. And the big task confronting the police and the the police authority and the successive chief constables was how to restore that legitimacy. And I think that, you know, people like uh, Med Hughes, who I've I've spoken to a hell of a lot since, you know, uh, he was chief constable of South Yorkshire uh, a few years ago. Um, And I think what what they're keen to do, as much for the sake of the personnel at South Yorkshire Police is to say, listen, we want to atone. We want this set right. Our legitimacy depends on this being done. So, to my mind, if you're asking me the question, ought it to ought it to take place? Ought there to have been? Um, then I think it's as much for all of those parties in the dispute to say, you know, let's exercise this in one go. And you think it's likely? You think it's possible? I don't think it's likely. I think events have have have, have seen that. Uh, you know, this is this is this is where the likes of uh, of, of Craig will will per- persevere. I've no doubt about that. But um, 
that I don't think it's likely in the in the foreseeable future. It, there was that tantalising moment, wasn't there, quite recently, where uh, Theresa May did did seem to be uh, opening the door to it. But um, but I think as long as long as that legacy, the the smell of that legacy, permeates the air, then uh, then I think that the job of the police, the distrust of the media, the, uh, the 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 resentment and sense of grievance that pervades those communities will persist. I saw a, a documentary recently which uh, had a, a lawyer say that the reputation of the of Yorkshire Police, South Yorkshire Police in particular, was so so low yeah. that if you had a case of one policeman's word against uh, a member of the public, yeah. they wouldn't win it. Uh, which seemed, which seemed. Yeah, well, I, th- I think you know. Martin used the word that, that you know he's, he's keen on um, ambiguity. I think I think balance also comes into it as well. And I think that uh, you know I've interviewed police police officers at senior level and rank and file level, uh, you know, going back um, from from the 1990s and the recent dem- more recent demonstrations, etc. I think there is a will there. There's a sense of it being um, a prerequisite to having that sort of legitimacy back. That there's a more persis- permissive style of policing, dem- and they'll do that where they possibly can. Uh, sometimes people ask me if there, were there to be another minor strike. I don't think that, that's that's a, a, a historical um, legacy now, rather than any any uh, reality. If there was to be something equivalent to the minor strike, what would happen? Good point. Good point. Again, would there be a political climate generated to justify uh, that? I I I don't know how it work. It would be certainly more difficult for the authorities these days. But I do feel that South Yorkshire Police, you know, um, uh, root and branch, are making an effort to have a more facilitating attitude to protest. You know, they've got these police liaison teams that do a hell of a good work in the community. And talking to them, if I'm any judge, then they are sincere in what they're doing. Um, you know they're police officers, and they they, they they need to do their containing and 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 whatever. And sometimes they 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 pull a few stunts, but in the main, I think there has been a sea change in the attitude there. It's, it's very good to hear. That was going to be one of my next questions, actually. What would a an, a moment like that look like if it happened today? I guess in two thousand and eleven, with the with the Tottenham riots and the the riots which sort of spread across the country in a couple of days. There was a different police kind of attitude or approach shown, which was much more about record, witness, take evidence, and then get the magistrates working through the nights to prosecute people. And the, and the general figures that the, the terms handed out were 25% longer than they would be for the equivalent of crime if it wasn't part of that particular moment. But the attitude was more to kind of as public public health and safety and uh, and gather evidence. That was a, a kind of a flare-up, and it was a very different kind of moment. But if we entered into some some sort of political crisis, I don't know, there was a contention over an election, or a sense that 48% or 52%, one, one half of the other has been completely mistreated or uh, not given their, their voice, and there's some kind of, you know, if there was a... Uh, people's vote march at the weekend so it's a very middle class kind of quiet polite sort of march but if there was something of that scale which ran for several months 
Do you see ourselves falling back into that kind of police state where, as you say, you thought you were uh, you were bugged by the police? You know, do you, do you feel that we could uh, fall back into that kind of police state? And I use the police state mm. uh, phrase in quotes. Mm. Um, I, th- I, th- I think it's all about choices. And I think that if you look at some of the, you know, I mean, you're talking about large scale public disorder. I, 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 uh, I wrote a book quite recently which was comparing r- riots, you know, in the v- across the world. Basically, what happened in places like Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, and and in Greece and what have you, and and it and it seems to me that there's there's always that kind of hesitate to say tipping point because it's more prolonged than that. But there's a period where the police can intervene in certain ways, and it's it's how they intervene or don't intervene. And I think that social media is a big part of that. You know, it's reassuring. It's showing sensitivity for people. It's understanding the cultures of those involved, etc. And I think that going back 30 years, there was none of that on the table, right? And I think that, um, you know, if you take, for example, the Tottenham riots and how they escalated outside of London, then the police looked like dinosaurs in that particular situation. You know, they'd got nothing to say about uh, people who were arrested, the nature of the... They'd, they'd got nothing to say uh, in terms of settling the, the community down, informing them of what they were doing, etc. And if you look at the other riots, then there was that sort of uh, almost like aloofness that was going on. Now, I think that all of those are representative of police decisions and police use of resources. So we're talking about as, something as if... If there's sufficient dis- disaffection, then it will happen. And I think it, you know, I think that the professional police in this day and age should be interve- able to intervene in such a way as to ensure that something like that does not happen. Martin, I was going to ask you, when you met with David, you kind of uh, came across a whole series of kind of coincidences, which kind of formed the way you wrote the story. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I mean the um, as readers of the uh, various anthologies that Comma have, have produced will know that the, the idea behind them is that you pair writers with experts in those particular topics. So my meeting with, with Dave was primarily to enable me to gather the kind of material and background information and political and social context um, that David is aware of through his research and his work that could inform my fictional narrative so I'd, I'd gone along I was aware of certain aspects of the the strike I'd read up on it I'd, I'd gone online and checked things but I really wanted to speak to someone who'd been there and seen it and lived through it um it, for me it started off as a sort of fact gathering exercise and a context gathering exercise and at that point I had no real concept of what the story would be um and the story emerged out of um not when when I was doing the the sort of journalistic bit of asking Dave things and writing down his answers or reading material that he'd, he'd sent me or given to me. It was when we just started chatting sort of off the record, as it were, about our own backgrounds and our own experiences and our own families. And it's been interesting hearing Craig talking about his dad, how family seems to keep cropping up in what, on the face of it, is, is a political issue. But it's also a personal family issue for, for people who are involved, isn't it? And and when I was talking to, to Dave, one of the things that emerged is that both of our dads were called Pete, which was a, a, a coincidence enough in itself. Both working class men from industrial backgrounds um, and both keen amateur footballers as well. Um, and, and we were talking about this and, it, and that, that conversation 
put in my mind the the way I felt about my dad and my relationship with him and growing up and inheriting <coughs> his his values you know in, in the story there's one point where um the the main character says we were brought up and one of the sacred sayings of our family was thou shalt not cross a picket line and that that was directly from my dad you know he, that, that came from him there was another one which is sort of less polite which is all coppers are bastards which is another one of my dad's um favorite sayings but um but having having <coughs> talk to Dave about his his dad and his background and 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 so on I, it, it made me realize that that was the heart to my story if I was going to write a story about Orgrieve and about the minor strike I wanted to come at it through family and through the way it affected families yeah so it was coming at it through family I, I knew that uh, family was the root into the to the story there um, so so that was it was that connection really that gave me a, a handle on on the narrative and and stories really are about people aren't they I mean you know news coverage is about people as well having a story about a, a famine in africa with a, a sort of distance shot of ten thousand people in a refugee camp has a certain impact but it's when the camera goes in close up on one starving child or one mother holding a dead baby that that the story comes alive through those personal connections and it's the same with fiction really i knew that the route into the story was through through the personal and that through that we could access the the political what's interesting uh, with regard to family is that um Families don't always talk about things. They don't always share mm. things. They ha they have these uh, th these secrets or these experiences which they try to protect their loved ones from and don't mm. don't share. Which is which is your your story. Uh, do you wish that your your dad had talked about it earlier? Um, I, I do wish he talked about it earlier. I think I think that would have helped uh, myself. I was the youngest of three, um, so my brother and sister Wayne and Claire they did grow up through the strike and I think that would have helped us all sort of comprehend it from a lot earlier stage equally I think it would have been good for him um, having seen how he's dealt with those things afterwards there was, a, there was a year's worth of kind of material there inside him that he'd not processed that he'd not really gone back to and revisited and it, it, I mean, it, it took him a while to, to get through that once we'd brought it to the surface um, so yeah I do I, I, I think secrets are always bad really um, and the, there's a lot in the strike that need to come out I think for everybody I think it would just help everybody heal and make sure a lot of the bad things that happened don't happen again to anybody What happened after his arrest? I, I take it his, his case was thrown out eventually It was, yes uh, Mike Mansfield was his was his uh, wow. barrister um, and he speaks very highly of him it was it was really interesting for the 30th anniversary the the Orgreave campaign we went back to Orgreave and we had a, a big party essentially and we invited everybody back and there were stalls and everything and trade unions and so on and my dad came with me um and Mike was there and it was the first time he'd seen him since leaving the court and they just mm -hmm. bought and he remembered him and they both just hugged each other and broke down mm -hmm. um and in a way that was that was you know it was quite powerful but when he was arrested, uh, again, this is his story, but he was he was in, at the front of the push, linking arms with a friend of his, uh, which they used to link each other's arms to sort of hold the line, I guess. And he felt his left side go go down to the floor, and his friend had been hit, and his he was he just collapsed. Uh, he'd been hit on the head with the truncheon. My dad went down to pick him up, and a policeman came through the ranks, pulled them both through and through him in a van, and he was charged with unlawful assembly and riot. For that, they even said he had a weapon on him, which was his house key. Um, there's, we've actually got a photo of him getting dragged off into the van, which we found completely by chance that someone from the BBC had taken a photo of him. Uh, but he was—he was initially he was denied 
legal aid. He wasn't allowed to phone call. My mum didn't know where he was for two days. And then when it came to the fact the police let him speak to someone, which was Mike Mansfield, he was in a, an abandoned building. They took him to an abandoned building and he was upstairs on his own, didn't know what was going on. And Mike Mansfield just walked in and he was just like, they've given me no brief, nothing. I don't know what's going on, so just tell me the truth. What, was the, what was the building? I, I, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. It was. It just. He, he. He sort of remembers it with a really kind of not a haze, but a a, a real sense of fear. So he, he remembers like the weirdest details, and yet he remembers the sort of the the overarching feelings as well. And he he he, he was on a, an unbelievable. Forgive me, because I don't know the the real police terms, but he, he had to report to Rotherham Police Station. He lives in Barnsley, and he didn't drive, and he had to report at seven a.m. every morning and seven a.m. at seven p.m. every night only for his curfew and if that was basically his day trying to get to Rotherham to say he wasn't leaving Barnsley which is yeah. ridiculous and it put an immense stress on him it put an, obviously an immense stress on my mum and my and my, my brother and sister uh, my granddad didn't speak to him because my granddad asked him not to go to Orgreave but he went uh, my granddad didn't speak to him for a long time after that and I think that's probably one of the reasons why he sat on that kind of um, that that feeling and his his processed his, his feelings of that event because he knew he knew my granddad didn't you know he had real ill feeling and he just sort of he had that sort of Yorkshire granite feeling to him like I told you not to go and you went and that's the end of that and but it, I, I say all this it is a really horrific thing that he he does have sort of really quite joyful memories of the strike as well um, even when he was being arrested for example he when he was being lifted he he had two policemen one under each arm that were lifting him off into the van and he says the overarching thing he was saying in his head repeating to himself was clench your toes up don't lose your shoes don't lose your shoes <laughs> because he'd, he'd, he'd pinched my granddad's shoes <laughs> that day and, he, and he, was, he was more scared of what my granddad was going to do to him than the police um and he has loads of sort of little anecdotes of sort of solidarity and camaraderie from that from that dispute which i think just shows you that how how close yet how divisive that strike was that it was one or the other there was no grey area and I think that has been that's the unique thing about that dispute that has has kind of not we've not really seen since because it, it, it was so black or white uh, in terms of who you might have sat with or who you didn't um, because it was so big and so influential. I remember my uncle from the south bringing up around Christmas time just this huge load of presents, and I thought, oh wow, bumper this year, and it was it was donations from different groups in London who, who were completely unconnected to the uh, to the strike, you know, and yeah, it was that there was that sense, and and there have been a few kind of moments where the strikers, uh, the solidarity of the time, and uh, has been kind of reflected in. Uh, in films and in uh, kind of art pieces, there are obviously there's Billy Elliot, there's Pride, um, Jeremy Della's kind of uh, Battle of Allgroove reenactment. Do you think that has changed the kind of the public perception of the strike? Because if you if you watch something like Billy Elliot, it would seem like the whole country was with the with the strikers, and or at least now the whole country is with the strikers. I mean, I was quite shocked when I saw Billy Elliot, where in the final scene the the dance instructor says good luck to his dad. Uh, you know, we're with you, or whatever the phrase is. It's quite, it's quite shocking for me because I grew, up, you know, where I was living, everybody was thinking that the, the strikers, you know, the miners were scum of the earth, you know. Uh, but do you think there's been a sea change in the perception of what happened, or is it just a kind of middle class left thing? I'm not quite sure. I think there, is, there is, there is a sort of a danger of of sort of romanticising what happened. Um, it's an incredibly complex thing that happened 
um, the overarching feeling I remember from watching Billy Elliot was his dad scabbed and yeah. he went to work yeah. for whatever reason he did yeah. that was the line now I uh, the, I know from my from my dad who, who personally holds this opinion but from other, pe- other miners that I've spoken to that there are sort of degrees of how severe they will treat people who cross that picket line for someone perhaps like in the story for example 10 months and is really ho- struggling to hold it together it was really hard on, on single men for example who they kind of had the, the they had bore the brunt of the benefit changes and things like that and the lack of money but I think there was more sort of sympathy or empathy whichever one you want to spin for that person than the people that never went on strike say in places like Nottinghamshire certain areas of course and equally the people that did go on strike in Nottingham I've heard them referred to as the bravest of the brave now I think there is a there is a degree that you can romanticise those things because it does become so heroic. I think for me, the, the, if there was one good thing that did come out of that is what is what the strike did for women. And I think in really patriarchal communities, which I, I, I kind of still grew up, even though I was raised by women, the strike brought my mum and dad's marriage up, mainly because she wasn't ever going back into that patriarchy. Suddenly the men were out of work and the women organised and they were creative and they built this sort of social structure around those communities so they could advise them on benefits they could advise them on legal aid they could give them clothes give them holidays all of that stuff happened and i think that for me personally my mum being involved in women against pit clothes for the time that she could walk before she was pregnant of course is one of the more enduring things that is, is kind of still not being talked enough about for me pride is a, an amazing piece of work billy elliott is an amazing piece of work that has gone on to other forms but what the women did was fundamental across our like entire society. Women against pit closures is, is 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 does deserve that legendary status, I think, for me, because they were so amazing. Um, and it tend it tends to sort of be talked about as a, a sort of male dominated dispute. There were women on picket lines, there were women at Orgreave, and they got the shit kicked out of them as well, and they lost teeth. And the famous the famous picture of the woman of Leslie Bolton, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I spoke to Leslie for my book um, and we met up in Sheffield. She still lives in Sheffield. She wasn't from Sheffield. She came up to join Women Against Pit Closures and, and sort of be involved directly. And she stayed. But uh, she she recalls it horrifically, you know, he hearing and, and I quote, I'll have you too, you bitch, from behind her. And uh, luckily a friend just managed to grab her arm and pull her out of the way. And John Harris, the documentary photographer who, who shot the, the photo, he has three photos of it, sort of a, a almost still frames of it coming down and just narrowly missing her face. I mean, she she was there. You can't deny, it. and that image of a woman about to be struck on by a, a, a policeman in riot gear on horseback that really did help the miners dent that kind of media tsunami that was coming their way. That that was the. It wasn't just Augury. That was the sort of the iconic image, the archetype that they could said, "Look, this is this is really what's happening to us." Not just here, but on other, in other picket lines all across the, the nation. This is what we're dealing with. So, in a way, that was a kind of I hesitate to say, it, but that was kind of a good thing for the strike in, in that it gave them more public support. I was going to ask you, Martin, to to read. You know the section where it talks about the character's mum speaking. Is that the one? That's yeah. that's the one I'd prepared, and it follows on very neatly from yeah. what uh, Craig's just been saying, actually. Um, so we rejoin the story here um, in the 1984 strand of the story. In the intervening period, um, the narrator, Matt, his dad, 
Dunn has been injured at Orgreave. He's been hit over the head by a police truncheon and um, has uh, has also been arrested and charged, even though he's the victim of assault. He was arrested and charged with having perpetrated a crime, which Craig's just been talking about in relation to um, his own father. Um, and uh, he's suffered a, a speech impediment um, and various other psychological issues. So that's been what's happening in the meantime. And we rejoined the story when um, Matt is back in London working again as a journalist and trying to sort of help out the family while the strike um, continues. When she wasn't working or making sandwiches at the welfare or shaking a collection bucket in Rotherham, Mam toured the country with some of the other women to give talks and raise funds. I'd even set up a visit to South London to address the local trades council. To see her before a room full of strangers, nerveless, articulate, informed, was a revelation. At home, the sole woman in a house of opinionated men, she was usually more of an observer than a participant whenever politics cropped up. But there she was at Lambeth Town Hall, bringing a hundred people to their feet in applause. I recorded every word for the piece we ran in the paper. Make no mistake, she said, this dispute isn't just about coal mines or mining industry or miners. It's about all of us, all of you. What we're witnessing is now less than a planned attack on the British working class and our communities. Mr Ridley, Mr McGregor, Mrs Thatcher, they hate us. And if we let them, they will destroy us. When the clapping finally subsided, she went on. The Prime Minister didn't batter my husband at Orgreave. She didn't put him in hospital. You won't find her fingerprints on that truncheon. Mam paused. But when I look at my husband, my Don, and see what he's become since that day, Mrs Thatcher's shadow hangs over him as surely as if she were standing right there in the room. The police didn't charge Dad in the end. They might as well have banged him up in a cell, though, because he'd more or less imprisoned himself in his own home. He spent most of his waking hours watching television, filling the living room with cigarette smoke. He no longer picketed, seldom left the house at all except to sit in the backyard with the Daily Mirror or the Rotherham Advertiser. The doctors couldn't tell if the speech impediment was physical or psychosomatic, He's lost confidence in his son, Mam said, when I was home one weekend and we were alone in the kitchen. A cupboard door bangs and he jumps like he's been shot. He looks as if he's lost weight, I said. Well, he would do. There aren't many calories in woodbines and PG tips. I tried to piece together what happened to him at Orgreave, but Dad was reticent about it and Rich had become separated from him in the chaos and so didn't witness the incident. According to Uncle Peter... Dad was hiding behind an ice cream van when he got hit. An ice cream van? I asked one time when Uncle Peter, Aunt Sylvia and our cousins were visiting. Aye, Rock on Tommy it were called. I'd gone on to Asda to buy some sarnies and left your dad queuing for 99s. Blimey, Rich said, you two aren't exactly Fidel Castro and Shea fucking Guevara, are you? We all laughed around the table, even Mam, despite the language. Even Dad. When I headed back from the supermarket, Uncle Peter went on, the street was swarming with coppers, chessing our lads all over the place, running into folks' gardens and everywhere. You were already on ground by then, Don. This fella from Thurcroft had taken off his T-shirt and were using it to stop blood from where you'd been clobbered. Do you remember any of that, Dad? I asked. I remember paying for 99s, he said, but I don't remember g getting any change. 
The thing from that day that sticks in Dad's mind above all else is the vibration from the police horses' hooves as they cantered across the field. I could feel it in their feet and right up their legs. I've lost count of the times he's told me that in the years since. In the film footage and photos which I've trawled through, I've only ever found one shot of my father at Orgreave. It's in a video clip of pickets rolling a tractor tyre down the slope towards the police lines. You can make out Dad, Uncle Peter and my brother in the background. Dad throws his head back, amused by something Uncle Peter says. They look happy, drenched in sunshine, shirtless in Rich's case, like three men on a works outing at the seaside. I've asked, but none of them can recall what my uncle said to make Dad laugh that day. Um, there are a couple of things in that extract which echoes what Dave was talking about earlier. The, um, um, the tractor tyre being rolled down the slope was one thing that cropped up in the conversation with him that, that I then wove into the story and wouldn't otherwise have been aware of. Um, but also the, the vibrations of the police horses' hooves, which is something you said that you remembered distinctly when they were cantering and chasing down the miners. You could feel the vibrations under exactly, your feet. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, it's those kinds... I mean, you can get so much by looking things up in cuttings and looking at YouTube clips and reading books about the, about the strike and about, about Orgreave, but it's that personal kind of anecdote that gives those kinds of authenticating details mm -hmm. that just lift a, a description in, into to something more authentic, I think. Absolutely, the, the sort of rock on Tommy, you know, and I know that image and I'm there. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I really distinctly remember that photo. I think it's yeah. by Martin Jenkinson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, incredible. And, and David mentioned when we were chatting that time when I was re researching the story that he'd, and I think he mentions it in his afterword in the book, that he saw a, a mounted police officer trying to go into Asda to pursue miners into the supermarket, but thinking yeah. better of it. And, uh, yeah. um, and that... You know, that's why I brought Asda into the story of Uncle Pete going off to buy the sandwiches there. And um, so, you know, I couldn't have been there on the day, but it, it felt as if I had been because it was brought alive in that in that conversation. It's amazing. And that going back to the thunder of the, the horses, horses th uh, hooves, it's kind of like it's, it's the fear of what of what happens. It really captures that fear of, you know, what happens when the state really kind of shows its teeth. And, you know, you have a government which... Uh, by by all accounts or by many accounts is is really kind of fighting a deliberate uh, political battle using using the police and fighting against uh, an entire movement uh, and it's it kind of captures the captures the sort of terror is that thud is that kind of fear when your heart drops and mm. you think shit this is this is getting real it's it's one of those kind of the, those fears that we have that we're not entirely free um, and you know, when when push comes to shove, um, you know, are our is our security, is our uh, you know, our police or our army actually there for us or against us? That was particularly um, striking for me when I looked at the the footage of of Orgreave and and other picket disputes um, to research this story. I mean, miners are, are tough men. They they're involved in physical labour. They could probably handle themselves in a in a fight if they needed to. And yet, in their t-shirts and jeans and trainers against police in full riot gear with shields and batons and helmets and on horseback it's it's to, to see physically tough men intimidated and threatened like that was seems particularly shocking I mean it's never acceptable with the police using violence against anyone but it seemed to make it more um, it made me more aware of just how how frightening that situation must have been but I think I think that that's at a very manifest level I think that there is something almost even more sinister about what happened in terms of 
you know, the breakdown of a contract between civilians and the police on a more mundane level. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of um, Craig's mum. Women, as as you rightly uh, drawn attention to this, Craig, went onto the picket line. And the incivilities that were recorded, you know, by those women uh, in, in in terms of the relations with the police were were, were, were absolutely disgraceful. You'd get pregnant women who were picketing, uh, sometimes at Augree, when you get police officers turning around and saying, who'd breed off a cow like you? You know, and you don't expect that. You know, you're entitled to to, to receive something a lot better from, from a professional police force mm-hmm. than that. That had been characteristic of police behaviour through the 70s and 80s in a lot of instances, though, hadn't it? As I well, it, recall, I mean, the, you know. the, it was a throwback, of course, to Greenham Common, mm. where there yeah. was that sort of, uh, you know, these are not deserving women anymore. Yeah. They're not behaving like sort of, you know, women are expected to behave. Yeah. And therefore they're fair game to be mocked exactly. and abused. Exactly. I mean, I, my first job in journalism was on the South London Press during the time of the, the 1981 riots. Um, and I, I was one of the reporting team that covered the Brixton riots and what had led up to that and that's another of the pieces that's in, in the protest anthology of course um, what had led up to that was the uh, police stop and search tactics where they would well I was going to say indiscriminately but they were discriminately stopping and searching young black men um, and when the Scarman inquiry took place it emerged that something like 70 or 80% of the offences in inverted commas that were committed were committed in response to people being stopped and searched 15, 20, 25 times a day being abused, being called all the, the names under the sun, um, being provoked um, the police were sort of provoking people to respond and then arresting them for their response and it, it, was, it was you know that seemed to be acceptable police procedure in, in those days um, I mean Dave mentioned earlier perhaps policing is different now um, but for a long time, it, it was that was more common than not, wasn't it? Sure. It, it just remains for me to uh, thank my three guests. Uh, it's been a, a phenomenal and uh, quite moving uh, talk. Thank you, David Waddington, Martin Bedford and Craig Oldman. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time when Zoe Turner will be talking to historian Elizabeth Crawford, author Michelle Green and museum programmer Helen Antrobus about the suffragette movement and in particular the hunger strikes of uh, imprisoned suffragette women.